0: I do want to talk about uh, vision. I'll just be up front. I want to talk about having a vision of the kingdom. And in the introduction, I'd like to highlight some things that I learned. And I, I thought I knew some of this, but it, it actually goes far, far further than I had thought that it did. I've heard for a long time that when it comes to elite athletes, because you know me, that's what I run around with are elite athletes, because you can tell, why is that funny? Why do No, I know why it's funny? I know why it's funny. So anyway, you know, in terms of looking at what they do, and it has to do with a lot of different professions, but I, I, it was easy to stu- easiest to study in elite athletes, that some of those at the top level of their game do a lot of visualization, that is, they actually take the time. To try to imagine doing the actual task they're going to do physically. Uh, they, you know, close their eyes, try to experience every sensation. There was a video on the, the New York Times had, for instance, of a, an Olympic uh, ski jumper. And she talked how she would stand in a room and close her eyes and she would imagine very intensely being at the top of the jump and she would go through her warm up exercises and she would imagine the cold air on the back of her neck. She would imagine the sights and the smells and the sounds and she would do it so frequently in her mind that by the time she got there, it was like she'd already done it. So many times, it wasn't like her first time, if you will, all week. I used to explain to students studying for exams that one of the best way you can study for an exam is to practice taking the exam in very exam-like conditions. When I was an actuary and I was going through the actuarial exams, that's what I would do is I would collect a lot of practice exams and I would try to practice them in that same kind of five-hour silence, nothing-but-writing kind of environment so that by the time I took the exam in the actual environment, it wasn't new. I felt like I'd been doing it over and over and over. But there's some things even I didn't realize about when it comes to athletes doing that visualization. That studies have shown. And, and I'm, I'll, I'll say one speculative thing. and It has to be speculative because I haven't looked into it yet. But it's really cool. And I hope it's true. But we'll, we'll find out in a minute. Well not in a minute. I'll look it up later. But I'll go ahead and mention it. But some things I do know are true. Is they're finding that those athletes. Who spend that time visualizing. What's ahead. Actually physiological changes. Happen to their body. Uh, there are those that that spend time visualizing, uh, lifting weights and building their biceps. And it's not like you just sit there thinking and your biceps, you know, just start swelling, right? That'd be nice. Uh, I've clearly been thinking of nachos a lot, right? If that were the case, but they did find that those that invested in that did grow larger biceps, like the benefits were maximized, like there was more substance there. They find that those who were in, uh, for instance, certain martial arts sports, visualizing what they were doing, they actually lowered their reaction times by 10% or so. That that they could narrow down what made a difference to the visualization by actually practicing it in the mind. The thing that I haven't been able to confirm yet, but that I did here... Was that visualization possibly even causes epigenetic changes. If it's done intensely. If you really practice it and really picture it in your mind. Your epigenetic system in your body, in your cells. Is sort of the, if you will, it's like an operating system that sits on top of your genetic system. It's like a second layer of codes. And it helps to control what is expressed and not expressed in your genome. So you've got DNA that says do this or do that, but your body doesn't just do all of that. It's got actually a layer on top of it that says what should be expressed and what should not be expressed, like little on and off switches. Believe it or not, it's actually a way that people can actually pass on habits that you wouldn't think are hereditable to their children because even though it's not a part of your genetics – There are choices we make that our body adapts our epigenetics for, and the epigenetics can actually be passed on. It's really a fascinating study. And I know that part's true, but the idea that visualization could possibly change the way your genes are expressing, that sounds too good to be true. I would really like to study it. But the source that I saw seemed credible. But I just, these days, I don't take anything at face value. I don't care if whatever, I don't care if it's Fox or if it's CNN or, or, or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. These days when there's a study or something, I go look at the study because you just can't, you can't even trust the title of the study anymore. The world is getting so so hard to believe. So it's a wonderful thing and I could imagine it because what they're finding is if you really intensely visualize something. To a certain extent, your body doesn't know the difference between what you're visualizing and reality. So much of our mind is devoted to processing our visual input, what we see. Yes, we process what we hear and smell and taste and feel, and that's why the best visualizers apparently try to engage all of the senses in their, in their picturing. But so much of our brain is devoted to processing what we see, and, and in terms of envisioning that, well, for instance, some of you had this experience. I know you have. I mean, you, you might be a lizard person of some sort. I know, sorry, I shouldn't say that. I know there's conspiracy theories that say there are lizard people. I do not subscribe to that. So let me back that up. Let's say you're a hamster person. I don't know if there's a conspiracy theory that there's a bunch of hamster people in the world. There probably is, though, now that I start. Okay, let's just say you're different. Let's just say you're different. But I know I've done this. Where I'm watching some video and it's like a, like a GoPro sort of situation where the camera is on, you're getting a first person perspective and it's just a television screen but it's a roller coaster and it starts to dive down the hill and I'm sitting on my couch having popcorn or something and I can feel in my body like I'm going down the roller coaster until your body realizes no, you're on a sofa, doofus. You're not actually on the roller coaster. Don't raise your hand, but has anyone ever felt that where you've seen something and you, and you feel it in your body? Um, my kids and I will watch YouTube videos where people end up doing dumb things. You're hoping they don't get hurt, but you're still watching, right? You're still watching where someone, you know, and I'll see someone fall from a great height and I'll feel it. I won't feel them hit the ground, thankfully, but I will feel something in my body. Why? Well, because your glands, everything is reacting. It's releasing, perhaps, adrenaline. It's doing something, changing what your mind is taking in. It's like I mentioned in a split sermon a long time ago about, I think, fake world. That your brain isn't designed to think there's a bunch of fake information coming in. It's designed to take in real information. And so the time we spend visualizing things makes a difference for us in a kind of reality. And what God has given us at the Feast of Tabernacles is a series of day after day after day opportunities to grow in visualizing his kingdom, to grow in making it more real in our lives. And I think the times that are ahead of us, and I'm sure many of you think this as well, the times that are ahead of us are going to need us to believe fundamentally and profoundly in the reality of the coming kingdom. And so what I want to really talk about today is that we not waste this opportunity. That all of us here at this feast, and if you're going to another one like I am, I have, at that feast as well, I'm not going to stop just because I leave Oregon. I want to encourage all of us to take advantage of every single day here to try to make a vision of that kingdom real. More real for us than the people around us now. More real for us than the chair that we're sitting in. Because in a very real way, it is more real. In a real way. Think about it. Just to go off on a slight tangent as we wrap up the introduction. A hundred years from now, can you even predict this place will still be here? It could be ashes between now and then. Right? 400 billion years from now, the kingdom will be here still as solid as it ever was with you and me, a part of it or not in a very real fundamental way. The kingdom is more real than anything around us. And we have to sense that reality strongly to get us through the times to come and to be a part of it when it arrives. So my desire today is to talk about how important that vision is, a vision of the kingdom to illustrate the difference it can make. And then hopefully giving myself enough time to give you some tools or some ideas of what you and I might do over the rest of this feast to help make that vision more real. And the title of my sermon today is make the vision real, make the vision real. Now, before I go into why it's important, let me kind of set a stage and and, and a little bit of a warning to a certain extent. The devil has created a world around us that is primed to distract us from a vision of God's kingdom. It is primed to give us alternate visions, things to fill your mind. Like, for instance, I I can see all of you, but... I won't really do this. If I stare at this light up here long enough, which is remarkably bright, and then I look down, I don't see you as well anymore. Suddenly, uh well that was a mistake, because I realized now I gotta look down at my notes and I can't do that. Well I'm not sure what I was thinking. All you white dotted head people. Um, I'll keep talking and maybe this will go away. So what the devil is doing is he's got so many alternate visions for you things to fill your eyes with, to burn into your retina where there's no room for a vision of the kingdom of God. Or maybe there's room, but it's just a little bit of room because you're busy focused on something else. You're focused on this over there, focused on that over there. Or, yeah, it's blurred your eyes enough so you kind of see the kingdom, but it's blurry, right? It's not quite as solid as it should be. You know, I remember the, the, the place I went to, to get these glasses and to get my first eye exam in, I don't know how long, at least four decades, I think. Uh, it was actually at a distance. The doctor wasn't even in the room. So it was good and cheap. That was nice. They actually tele, uh, did it. I don't know how to say it. They had a televisit, but they could control the machine from where they were. And so they put that eye thing in front of you and, it, and it's all click, 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 just. Terrifying, You know, it's, here's this click, clack, clack, clack thing, and they're about to put it right on your face. But it's, you know, to go through all the lenses and such. And after asking you all the questions, you know, is this better or worse, better or worse, better or worse, testing all these lenses, uh, then they gave all the information to the uh, the actual optometrist. And when she came on the screen, and she said, okay, uh, they, they put the thing back now, and they said, okay, how does this look? And things were blurry. And then, based on all the information she got, they set it to... The setting that would help my eyes and said, uh, now how is this? And it was like, well, that's great. Wow. Look at that. That is, that is really, really nice. And then they put a little card with, you know, the different letter sizes as the letter, the font gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And they put the card in front of it and have me just read the bottom line, the 2020. And it was like, I was living in HD all of a sudden, right? Which all of us are living in HD, but not me. I've been living in SD for a while. And so all of a sudden, it's like, well, I can see the grain of the paper. It was just it was just absolutely fantastic. But that's what the devil wants to do is kind of dull our eyes with different things that we see. And I think part of what's contributed to, like at least in my case, is staring at so many computer screens, right? In fact, I even find if I'm looking at one thing for a while, And then I look past it, I just, now those things are blurry and it takes a while for my eyes to adjust to a different focus. The devil is constantly working his best to get you to focus on other things. And sometimes those are things that seem unworthy of your attention. Sometimes the best bait from his perspective is stuff that seems like it's very worthy of your attention. Life or death worthy of your attention. But in the end, it also is a distraction. And I just want to look at two examples in the Bible of people who, well, people or I would just say God's warning concerning losing focus and getting that distraction. Uh, Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. And just here at the beginning of the feast, I'd I'd like to make sure I, I get these two out of the way. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And we have Paul talking to Timothy, explaining some things he needs. And he mentions Demas in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 10. After telling Timothy in verse 9 to be diligent, to come to me quickly, he says in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 10, For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Now, Demas is mentioned in other letters as well. He's mentioned in Philemon. He's mentioned in Colossians. He's called by Paul a fellow worker. Someone who was working beside Paul during the hard times. You know, people threatening to throw rocks at Paul. Possibly throwing rocks, actually, at Paul, right? Uh, going into prison, supporting him. You could not be a fellow worker of Paul and not be working hard. And so this is someone that had skin in the game, and yet here he is in 2 Timothy chapter 4 saying that now Demas has forsaken him. Why? Because he loved this present world. And brethren, this world gets us a lot to love. And I say love, it's in quotes. But frankly, when we are giving our time, our attention, our devotion to it, what is love? Other than giving time, attention, and devotion. In fact, what is love but self-sacrifice? Self-sacrifice. And how many of us are sacrificing of ourselves for some of the things we're very devoted to in this world? Let me give you what's going to sound like a very trivia example, trivial example. I don't really get into a lot of social media. I I feel a certain kind of pressure to do so because with the telecast, I find, I find that it helps. Yeah, I have, there's people that watch the telecast that reach out to me on Facebook, which is difficult because I don't check. Facebook very often. Sometimes their notes will sit there for like six months or so. And so I need to learn to do, do that better. But I find if I turn notifications off, I immediately uh, turn notifications on. I immediately regret it uh, because my day is just filled with notifications. So it's either feast or famine. And when it comes to social media, I prefer famine. So anyway, I often turn those notifications off. But the one that I do tend to indulge in is Twitter, uh, I find that I enjoy Twitter. It's generally a cesspool of angry opinions. But at the same time, uh, it is an opportunity to sort of interact with people in an interesting way and to find things that I can kind of comment on and practice on commenting without being too snarky. You can be too snarky That's it's like, okay, look, Elijah was sarcastic, but that's over the line, right? I mean, you really got to You want to be careful. You want to get it right and, and learn to be a happy warrior, if you will. Uh, respectful. But at the same time firm, and I, and, I, and I get into a few Twitter fights here and there, try to conduct myself well. But if I'm not really careful, I can actually lie down in bed at 10 o'clock, and then at 11.30, it's finally lights out, and lights out isn't the light next to my bed, the light is the light from my phone, where I've been on Twitter for an hour and a half. Why? Because the scroll is endless. It's just endless. It's designed to be endless. They want you on it forever. That's all they want. That's all they ask. Please just spend your entire life on our social media platform. That's all we ask for. You can do anything else you want as long as all of your time and energies are devoted to us. And they're designed to do that. The same kind of principles that go into designing video games. that keep people on. Some of you who are more familiar with video games than perhaps you ought to be, right? They keep you along. They bring you along. They give you a boss battle. And uh, if the boss is too easy. Well, that's boring, right? Nobody wants, it's not even a challenge. If the boss is too challenging and you've played for months and months and you still can't beat and your rage quit, like, well, forget this, right? You know, this game, these terrible designers, they don't know what they're doing. You know, they've made a terrible game. They want you just in that zone where every victory is satisfying endorphin rush, Pew, you know, that's what they want. And they're very good at it. If you are not careful, I'm not saying video games are inherently evil. They're not inherently evil. But they can destroy your life, right? Uh, They can if you're not careful. You know, it's like alcohol, right? Alcohol is not inherently evil in moderation. And if you're a person who cannot enjoy alcohol in moderation, you should not have alcohol. There is no biblical right to alcohol. Someone who points at the Bible and says alcohol isn't wrong and continues to allow themselves to get inebriated is a sinner who needs to repent. And video games are the same way. Now, at least I'm not an alcohol. Like, you know, you're doing that. No, you are. You're a video game a you know, whatever it is. These things are designed to do that. And me, I've got to evaluate whether I'm a twitter a Right. We've got to face our demons, not literal demons. okay. don't get weird. This isn't a Pentecostal church. Uh, But we've got to face these things that seek to grab us and drag us down and distract our vision. Because, you know what, maybe that hour and a half on Twitter was the best thing for me to do that day. I kind of doubt it. Right. Sleep probably would have been good. Demanding job. You need sleep. But I do know it was an hour and a half that I probably wasn't all that focused on the kingdom of God. And so we have to be mindful that the world wants to give us wine and song and music and food. And all of these things can be distractions from a larger, more important vision. Demas was in love with this world and it broke him and it pulled him away. Uh, This one is not going to seem related And I'm telling you it's related. I really only have one kind of theme distraction here before we get into actually building vision and why it's important. But it's going to seem different. And I'm telling you it's not. Let's turn to Isaiah. We're going to go to Isaiah chapter 8. And I already sense it's possible that some of you might be thinking... Oh, man, don't go to that conspiracy verse. You know, I'm so tired of hearing that, you know, and people throwing that in my face when it comes to conspiracies. You know, brother, we'll get through it together. All right. You know, we can do it. You know, we can, we can get through it together. Uh, in Isaiah chapter eight, there's a warning. And, and, I, and I will be upfront. It, it can be misunderstood. It is easy to misunderstand it. In Isaiah chapter eight and verse 11. And I feel this is that much more vital during the feast. Because the distractions here actually hamper our fear of God. And we are literally here, as we heard from Mr. Weston on the opening night, we're here to grow in the fear of God and all that that entails. And so I think this is directly related. And it is related to also uh, being hampered in your vision. Isaiah chapter 8, starting in verse 11. We read here in verse 11, The prophet says, for the eternal spoke thus to me with a strong hand. It was important to God what he was about to say and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people saying, do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled the eternal of hosts. Him you shall hallow, let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Now let's talk about what this is not saying and then let's talk about how it does tie into vision. This is not saying that conspiracies don't exist, right It's not saying that. it literally doesn't say do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy because there's no such thing as conspiracies. There definitely are conspiracies in the world. Uh, there's some that it's, there's, there's ways to test, to kind of get a sense, but, but you have to have a, a willingness to have an open mind, and often the more people get sucked into some conspiracies, the less of an open mind they seem to have. It's difficult, I, I was, uh, corresponding with someone, actually someone not, not in the Living Church of God, but was, was writing me about it, and, uh, I do write to people not in the Living Church of God, you know, we have other people we know, but, the person was mentioning is like, oh, I just don't understand. He said, "You know, I get tired of people dismissing what I have to say because I've done my homework, and I'm tired of of know nothing people that haven't done their homework concluding differently." But what I, I'd like to try, I'm trying to communicate, is that there, that's what everyone says, even people who radically dif- disagree with that person, is that they've done their homework. Right? Uh, they're not low information people. They've done their homework too. So which set of homework should I go with? The problem with most people doing their homework is that if they really step back and looked at the classroom, they would find that they are both teacher and student. And when you're the teacher and you're assigning yourself the homework, it's no wonder that you're getting straight A's. Doing the homework is important, but it's usually helpful to not be your own teacher uh, in that regard. It's usually helpful to have some outside influence because the Bible says, trust not in man. And that includes even ourselves. But the point is here is it's not saying there's no such thing as conspiracies. I am here to say that many conspiracies you hear about generally are not true. There's not a race of lizard people, right? Uh, you know, on the earth, that's not, that's. That's not true. If I'm breaking some of your hearts, I don't think I am. But you know, you never know. I mean, I've been surprised And people say, "Look, Mister, I know you say that, but there is totally an alien base on the moon, and there's totally half lizard people, and it's like, well, okay." Um, uh, and I, but I, I try to be open. There's, the Earth is not flat, and I, that, I, it's a higher probability that might bother some of you. Um, but I, but let me I, I, let me say that. I will say this, people that dismiss a flat earth really, really, really quickly often haven't looked at some of the arguments that are made. Some of the arguments can sound really pretty good. You know, believe it or not, they can sound fairly, you know, convincing. The more you learn, the more you realize they're not. But that's part of the challenge is they start to sound convincing at first until you realize they're just not. I remember someone almost convinced by, for instance, the idea that you know, there's a thermosphere above the earth and the thermosphere is to thousands and thousands and thousands of degrees. And the argument is there's no way, for instance, that uh, the moon capsule on the way to the moon could have passed through the thermosphere because the little sheets of metal and such would have melted at that degree. The melting point of the metal is so much lower than the temperature of the thermosphere that there's no way that, that it actually would have survived. And that almost convinced someone because it sounds really good. But then that's not the way temperature actually works. Temperature is a measure of like kinetic energy in terms of uh, uh, air molecules, in this case, air molecules. And it's the same, it, the reason it didn't melt the capsule is because it's one thing to be soaked in water that is 212 degrees, you're going to be boiling Fahrenheit. It's another thing to have just a few occasional molecules hit you that happen to have that much energy, you're not even going to notice. The difference is, if you were to go into, say, a sauna, well, people go into saunas to get healthy. Even a really hot sauna doesn't necessarily kill you unless you get locked in or something. That's murder mystery TV show stuff. But, you know, you can be in a hot sauna. But if you were to take a cup of water that was the same temperature as the hottest sauna you can take and stick your hand in, you're talking third degree burns. You're talking permanent damage because it has to do with contact and density and, and, and how many molecules are making contact. Uh, it's, it's It's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. Anyway, the, uh, why did I even get onto that? The whole point is to say that a lot of these things they sound good at first, but then you dig more and they just don't. They don't tend to survive uh, repeated uh, uh, contact. I could explain to someone how to how to demonstrate for themselves the Earth is is round without having to talk to NASA. Uh, there's a lot of things you can actually do. It might take a little work, but it's, it's worth it if it means understanding things more clearly. So there's a lot of things out there that aren't true, but there are some that are. For instance, they're not lizard people, they're hamster people. Like I was saying, no, I'm just kidding, there's no hamster people. But yeah, sure, of course, the idea that people wouldn't team up to try to get benefit for themselves without other people understanding, well, of course, you know, of course people do. People do that all the time, right? Uh, But it's not what he's saying here. Read it again carefully. He says in verse 12, Don't say a conspiracy concerning all this people call a conspiracy. First, think about when someone says a conspiracy, how are they saying that? You're not saying, ah, my conspiracy, uh, you know, so what? Do, 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 do. No, it's usually in panic tones. It's a, it's with great concern, a conspiracy. There's a conspiracy to do this. There's a conspiracy to do that. And he's, I'm not saying God's saying chill because I wouldn't project that onto God, but he is saying, don't go out just crying a conspiracy concerning all this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. He's saying, don't get caught up. In these things. It's really a continuation of the theme from verse 11. Where he says that God spoke to him with a strong hand. Instructed him that he should not walk in the way of this people. It's a continuation of that thought. Because those are things people in the world are getting caught up in. Those are things they're concerned about. Oh, there's a conspiracy to... Uh, to do something in the United States. There's a conspiracy to take over with a socialist government or there's a conspiracy to take over with a white nationalist government or there's a conspiracy to take over with a fill in the blank here government, right? Oh, I tell you, the Republicans, they're just gerrymandering everything because they've got a plot they're going to take over and they're going to kick this out and that and oh, the Democrats, they've got a plot they're going to do this and that. You bet there's a lot of plots out there, right? I mean, that's part, That's that's what goes on all the time. But let the world be caught up in those things. What are we concerned with? Verse 13. He was concerned that it's taking away from this. The eternal of hosts. Him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. You know, whenever I was, I had appendicitis recently. Some of you, some of you heard about that. When we talked about it at the livingyouth.org website. By the way, I appreciate the comment, uh, podcaster extraordinaire. That would be uh, not true, but we are learning, right? We've done 28 or 29. If you're not aware of it, you can go out to livingyouth.org and see the YouTube videos and on Spotify. It's something we do for the, the teens and young adults. But I know, like, for instance, when, you know, in the middle of the night, you get to be in your 50s and you get a pain here and there. Uh, and so what do you do? You jump on Dr. Google and you're looking it up, right? You know, Dr. Google, tell me, what do I got? You know, you're looking up all the symptoms and next thing you know, it's, uh, you know, colon cancer or Crohn's disease or, you know, you have no idea what, but you're devoting a lot of time. And honestly, there's a little bit of fear, right? And if you think, well, I'm not afraid. I just want to know. Well, then fine. Think of it as fear in terms of respect. As in, I respect the fact that this could be a dangerous condition and I want to get more information, There's a lot of people that are very caught up in things in the world that need to ask themselves, am I really spending my time in this because it's allowing me to grow in a greater vision of the kingdom of God? Or is it because I really just want to ferret out all the details about this conspiracy and I really just want to know more? And in the end, am I really just scratching an itching ear? You know, if the devil knew of a real-life conspiracy that was vast and involved maybe the major individuals in both political parties, and of course the devil wouldn't know, he'd be a part of things like that, right? And if the devil knew, and if he knew just the right evidence to put together and to make sure you saw, because he knew it would consume a lot of your time, that could be devoted to family, Friends, church, Bible study, even having just a good laugh with your neighbor. The devil's not going to care if it's true or not. He just wins because you're distracted. He just wins because you're distracted. You know, whether you want to make America great again or whether you want to build back better or all the other things that the world is trying to throw at us, What he doesn't want is God's people caught up in that. He wants God's people remembering the eternal of host. Him you shall hallow. He shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. We need to make sure that our life reflects Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Starting in verse 1. ...of Colossians chapter 3. Paul writes in verse 1... ...if then you were raised with Christ... ...seek those things which are above... ...where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. He said, set your mind on things above... ...and not on things on the earth. For you died... ...and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Understand what he's saying here. He's not saying, set your mind on things above... ...and not on things on the earth. So if you don't have a driver's license... Too bad. You can't focus on studying for it because that's an earthly thing. And you've got to focus only on Bible studies. So you're going to be, you know, 82 years old and still not know how to drive a car, but you've had your nose in a Bible the whole time. That's not what he's saying here. Yes, we have to live life. We should live life. We should participate in this world. We should grow in our skills. He, we should participate when I say in this world. I don't mean in terms of worldly things from a spiritual perspective. I mean, we should live life. Jesus Christ did not pull us out of this world, but spiritually he did. He's talking about the things that our life focuses on. The things that are vital to us, that are important to us. And that should be, Matthew 6, the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. He's saying, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. He says, for you died. What a weird thing to say. Verse 3, as best I can tell looking around, you're not dead. Though some of you haven't moved in a while. I'm still going to presume the best. He says, for you died, you died, you when you went into water, that was God's approximation. That was a picture. It was a symbol of your death, your death to the things of this world, your death to the cares of this life in the sense that those cares are unhealthy, that they don't feed the larger purpose that God has called you to. You know, it is a very good picture of death. I'm glad it didn't have to make it literal. We got to go into dirt, you know, or a cave. You know, water is a lot easier to lower someone in and bring them back up. But you know, if the minister did lower you into that water and then sort of started a really long-winded prayer, Oh, you know, while this person is underwater, God, I pray you will forgive him. You know, and next thing you know, it could be that way, right? Uh, because you can't survive underwater. You don't have gills. If you do have gills, Man, I'd love to see it. That would be really cool. But I don't know anyone with gills. You go underwater, you die. He's saying you died. That picture your death to these things in the world that wrap up everyone else's attention. He says those things aren't for you. In fact, where is our life bound up? It's in verse 4 where it's described. It says when Christ, who is Our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What a statement when Christ, who is your life, where is your life? It's in Christ where he is. That's where it is. And the fact that he's not here yet should feel like a part of you is missing. It should feel like you're incomplete because a part of you is permanently and forever with him. And if anything, it's your desire to invest more with him so when he returns and brings your life to you, you're ready for it. You're transformed to be like him, to accomplish the things he wants to do in glory in this world. The devil is ready to distract us with so many things. And if we feel those things are going to serve our spiritual purposes and serve the church and serve our family, even if they don't, He's ready to help us believe that that's the case. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. It breaks my heart when I've written to... I know another person wrote me and they were just caught up in all these things. And they just didn't... It's difficult because they see all the the church members around them just not understanding them. And as far as they were concerned, falling into darkness. And it was amazing when you really boiled down a lot of the accusations the person was making. They were all rooted in essentially the political talking points that you see the world making. You know, liberal this, conservative that, whatever the case is. Oh, you know, Fox News, CNN, you know, all, all the It was all the same kind of stuff the world says, but it had this veneer of church of God on it. It had this sort of veneer of uh, the truth, the devil, but really it was the same stuff. The person was expressing no more wisdom than you see from some of the talking heads on television. And the devil will do that to get us caught up in that, to move our vision from the kingdom. But how powerful is a vision of the kingdom? We only have to look at Hebrews chapter 11. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 11 and we'll go through part of it a bit slowly. In Hebrews chapter 11, there's a reason we often call it the heroes of faith chapter or the faith hall of fame. Talks about Abel and Enoch and Noah, Abraham and Sarah. But it says some very specific things that should move us to want to focus on. Enhancing our vision and making it real here at the feast in Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 13, having spoken of, for instance, the last ones to talk about were Abraham and Sarah, it says in verse 13, because what did Abraham and Sarah do, they left their homeland, right? Abraham left his homeland with all of his goods where he was comfortable. I can't say whether he was happy or not. I don't know. But I, if I were comfortable, I'd probably be happy. Uh, and become a nomad, essentially. Had to start moving from place to place with all of his things. Taking him to a, whole, to a future promised land that in the end he would never actually have. In the end, it was really just going to be for his descendants. It says in verse 11 of Hebrews 13. These all died in faith. Not... Having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, notice the visual language, having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Notice having seen them, it was as if they could see it, their vision was clear. Yes, they could see the world around them. But in addition to the world around them, they could see that future. They could see those promises and those promises were real. They were motivating. And at times they were more real than the world around them. You know, it says later in the verse, it says, having seen them, it says, afar off, having seen them afar off, were assured of them and embraced them. There's times we know of the promises of God But we're still not assured of them yet. We're growing into that. And we haven't maybe fully embraced them. I remember at a certain point in my life, I had to ask myself, am I really all in on this truth? I mean, all in. Ready to look like a fool. Ready to look ridiculous to the people, all the people who have ever known me. You know, I I started learning the truth when I was in high school and I started dating a girl uh, my freshman year in college who was in my high school. And then I learned pretty quickly that we don't date outside of the church. I didn't know that at the time when I started dating her. And in fact, I started dating her a little bit before I started attending the church. Uh, and so then I found out we didn't, you know, we didn't date outside the church. We don't want to marry outside the church and you shouldn't date whom you shouldn't marry. And so I broke up with her and I broke up with her really stupid in the sense that, uh I think we, uh, I'd come home for a weekend and kind of dropped her off and said, well, hey, uh, you know, we need to break up. And, uh you know, why? Because the law wasn't done away. And because, uh, you know, how it went from there, you know. And I remember her just sitting in the car like, uh-huh. Oh. Hmm. Okay. You know, and boy, that was... Really, I was excited about the truth. You know, it was all amazing, and I was a little weirdo, is how I came across. I'm sure. You know, she'd known me for years, and all of a sudden, I was probably like a really different person. Well, then later on that year, my freshman year in college, I kept because I was I was really popular back in my high school. I was uh uh you know the guy that had the you know good grades and but I started hearing that well yeah Wally went to college and gotten a cult. Wally went in college and and now he's a part of some weird cult and. That hurt because my reputation back in my school actually really did mean a lot to me. And I kind of thought, well, how can I repair this? You know, I I really couldn't think of anything. But then as years go on, you realize, well, no, that's just going to happen more and more. Even amongst people I, I truly respect And people whose opinion makes a difference to me. And they might think some truly terrible things. And now I've been in the ministry long enough. You can't be in the ministry long enough. Before someone gets a really terrible idea about you. That's not true. Um, It's bad enough things that could be true. But they're not satisfied to those. They tend to go find some that aren't. And you have to recognize. Is that okay? Right? Is that okay? And Have I really gone all in? As we heard in the earlier message. Really all in. And. We all have to ask that question ourselves. They were assured of them. They sacrificed everything for this vision. Because it was real, they were truly assured. In fact, listen, keep your place there, but you might go up just to the beginning of the chapter and read the beginning in verse 1. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. We read here, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Sometimes we misexplain this. It's not saying... That faith is based on evidence, even though, yes, your belief in God certainly should and can be grounded in real evidence that he is real. But that's not what it's saying here about faith It's saying that faith itself is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. Uh, it was Dr. Fall. I hope I wrote it down. Yeah, Dr. Fall said this last Sabbath in San Diego. He said, I think of faith. As a rock solid assurance that we know something is true in the sense of God's promises that they are true. Because we can prove God, we can prove that he's real, that he exists, but his promises take an extra measure of faith. Because it's not just proving the fact that he is real, it's trusting him. You can prove your mother and father are real, but do you trust them when they tell you something? That's faith. It's more than just proving something is so. It's that extra step that trust demands. And when you build faith, it does take on the weight like evidence does. It takes on extra mass and extra force, if you will, where suddenly your beliefs are punching above their weight category because you have faith because those things have become real. Let's go back down to verse 13 because that's what they had. They had a vision of these things so that when they died in faith, they were able to do so because they were assured of them. These things are real. That kingdom really is coming. But yes, I see Canaan around me or we see Oregon around us and there's trees and dirt and there's ocean. But you know what's more real? The kingdom of God. It's what if, you know, who knows? Maybe this is all some big illusion. Someone's going to flip a switch. And next thing you know, we're not in Oregon. We're in uh, San Francisco. I don't know. Something really, we'll do our best to get back here as fast as possible. Uh, but God's promises are real and they are substantive. And we have to believe those things. And the thing is, they did. To the point that it says at the end of that verse, they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They confessed that we don't even belong here anymore. Do we feel like we're just passing through? If our vision of the kingdom is strong enough, then we do. If our vision of the kingdom is strong enough, then the more that feels like our home instead of where we are now. The more Jesus Christ is real to us, the more that we want to be where he is in that kingdom, then the more we're ready for this one to move on. There's so many things sometimes we think, oh, you know, if I were to die, I would miss this and I would miss that. And that's a natural thing to think. It's not wrong to not want to die. Just so you know, it's, it's actually really good, you know, not to want to die. But at the same time, when you're assured of these things... It takes on a completely different meaning. I, I, like, a, you know, again, I'm 52, I had appendicitis. You start, eat, act, you get all these feelings. You wonder what they are. I'm going to a primary care visit yeah, after the feast. And I haven't been to a primary care doctor in a long time. I, I feel like I was going to just roll the dice and say, you got this, you know, or you got that. But we'll find out. Hopefully he says, you know, you're the most healthy man I've ever seen in my life. I can't fathom that. This, it just seems unlikely. But regardless, you know, you're going to go, you know what you're going to get. But I am thinking of my mortality to be sure. Yeah, I'm thinking, you know, if something happens to me, I, you know, I have a wife I love dearly that I that I I want to see cared for. I'm grateful I have four sons. Uh, I have no concern for her in that regard. At the same time, I still want to be able to work with them. I want to be able to to continue spending time with them. I like to think that the day I die, they're not going to throw a party and you know, ding dong, the dad is dead, right? And I hope they're not going to do that. I like to think they're going to grieve. They're going to grieve, and I, and I think about that. Possibility. And that, that does weigh on me. That they would have to go for, cause I, I know what it's like to not go through life with your parents anymore. And I don't want them to have to do that. I'd love to be here when Christ returns and we all get changed together. But you know, when I was lying there in pain with my appendix, uh, inflamed, and it was really pretty. I, you just barely stroked the skin. It's like, oh, that hurts so bad. It was rose. I, I didn't burst, but the doctor said it was just really close. So it really, and I was thinking those kind of thoughts. But there was a comforting thought among many. One was that my sins are forgiven. I can't, uh, if you are not baptized yet, you don't know what that's really like. But the knowledge that your sins are forgiven and you're in Christ's hands. But then also the knowledge that if something just suddenly went wrong, not only in a moment would I be seeing Christ, God willing, as I understand things, if I'm, if I'm there, but not just that. Also, God willing, That my kids would be right there. That if they do their part. Then they're there too. And we're not gone for a moment from my perspective. But more than just seeing them again. At you know 25 and 23 and 21 and 18. But seeing them in glory. That potentially I was literally moments away. If I were to die from seeing my wife and my children in glory. And that thought had never crossed my mind before. And it prompted me to think I need that to be more real because it's not. I, I, I mean, I've thought of my, my, my children in the kingdom doing things and healing people and such, but just somehow it just took on a different flavor all of a sudden. And I recognize kind of like, again, I was talking about Mr. Bueno, you know, I've gotten glasses now and that's great, but I need this other vision to be sharper. I need that to be more real because when that's more real, you make different decisions. You don't do the same things that you would do when that vision is fuzzy and incomplete. And these individuals in Hebrews 11 were doing different things. It says in verse 15, truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. If that's where their mind was. Was on the place where they came from. The foods that they missed. The comforts that they had there. They could have gone back. But it says instead in verse 16. They desire a better. That is a heavenly country. The kingdom that they never saw in their lifetime. And never got to rest in a sense. Working towards. That kingdom was more real for them. And therefore it says also in verse 16. God is not ashamed to be called their God. And he has prepared a city for them. Don't we all want that? What a thing to say. God is not ashamed to be called their God. That vision made a difference for them. And it can make a difference for us in a deep and profound way. And it's worth every moment we can spend this feast sharpening our focus of that vision. And making it as real as we can. Because before you know it, the last great day is gone. You know who's back? Uh, your boss. Which might be you. Maybe if you're self-employed and now you got to go back into boss mode. Uh, you know, you could be your boss, your employees, your job, uh, your school, your classes, your bills. It's all there. It's waiting for you. It's still there. It's going to be there. Uh, and you won't have this time set aside like you do now. So let's take every advantage of it. To talk about how to take advantage of it, I just want to give you some suggestions. I'm not going to say these are the only ways to sharpen your focus on uh, vision of the kingdom, but there's some, and and I do hope they're helpful. One thing I'd recommend you do this feast is focus your prayers. There's things I, I pray about fairly consistently you know I, I we 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 all have things that are probably on our mind pretty consistently, and I try to hit the the major food groups of prayer pictured in the model prayer right uh, if you go. I guess you could put it that way. But, uh, you know, you know, Christ gave us a model prayer to kind of make sure we we know the things we should be praying about. doesn't mean you have to hit all of them every single prayer, right? It's not like you see suddenly your car is stuck in the road on a railroad track and you can't get out and there's a train coming. It's like, oh, i got to pray for protection. Well, first, uh, you know, what's the first part of the prayer? I need to say, okay, uh, no, you just go straight to it. God, I don't want to die by train today, right? This was not my plan. You do a 911 prayer. You don't always have to go through everything in the model prayer. But it is there to help us make sure we're not missing something. It is there to make sure we have our priorities right. Notice it starts with praise of God and his greatness. Our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then what is the very next thing? Your kingdom come. He even wraps it up at the end. It gets double billing in a sense, right? At the very end for yours, you know, is the, uh, the the kingdom and the power and the glory, right? It's there at both at the beginning and at the end. God wants us to focus on it. Well, here at the feast, I would recommend focus in a special way on the kingdom in your prayers. Ask God. It's as simple as that. At least that. At least that. If you just add this one thing to your prayers during this feast, I'll, I'll be happy. And that is, ask God to help sharpen your vision of his kingdom. Ask him explicitly and ask him directly. Because he's your father and he wants to do things for you. He, but he wants to know what it is you want. You know, Moses boldly asked God for, uh, it's, it was literal, but you could say for a certain vision, in Exodus 33. We're just gonna, you don't have to turn there, I'm going to look at this one small verse. But in Exodus 33... And God was talking with Moses, and it says in Exodus 33, verse 18, that I can't believe Moses felt this bold at this point. It shows how close they were. It says in verse 18 that Moses said to God, please show me your glory. You know, not behind a cloud, not up on a mountain. He wanted to see God's glory. And the one who actually was Jesus Christ, as we know, actually told him, you know what, I, I will make all my goodness pass before you. It's going to have to be my back, though. You can't see my face. That's just too much for you, Moses. Uh, but I'll show you my back. Now, some of you might be tempted to be that bold like Moses. Well, that's what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask for a vision of God in his glory and greatness. Well, let me ask you also, do you really want that? I mean, God prepared Moses for that moment, right? Moses had already been through a lot with God. So before you ask something like that, you might say, do I want God to take me through everything he took Moses through for decade upon decade upon decade that would have prepared Moses perhaps for a moment like that. But still, there is an example here of being bold and asking God. Sharpen this vision because you know who can see it more clearly than you can? Jesus Christ can see it more clearly. God can see it more clearly. It's on their minds every day. They want to send that kingdom to this earth far more than you and I want it to be here. It is on their minds. And just to know that you want to see it more clearly yourself, how much would they want to share that with you? Let's go ahead and read that explicitly in Luke chapter 11 to make sure we we know we have God's permission in Luke chapter 11, Jesus Christ encourages us to do these things, to ask him for things. It says in Luke chapter 11, I'm going to start in verse 9, Luke 11 and verse 9. Jesus Christ says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find knock and it will be open to you. He says for everyone who seeks receives who seeks sorry asks receives who seeks finds and who knocks it'll be open to them verse 11 if a son asks for bread from any father among you will he give him a stone or if he asks for a fish will he give him a serpent instead what kind of a jerk father would you be right if you did that verse 12 or if he asks for an egg will he offer a scorpion You know, if you've ever done that, get out, right? I mean, you're a terrible dad, you know, and you're a terrible human, and we don't like you among us. You should go somewhere. It's like, oh, yeah, my kid asked for an egg the other day. So I put it in a bag, and it was a scorpion. He reached right in and got stung. It was the best thing ever. Well, you're no longer allowed to be a father. You know, something wrong with you, right? But Jesus is making a point, because notice what he says in verse 13. Here I am making fun of those dads. What does he say about all of us who are dads in verse 13? He says, if you then, being evil, by the way, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, here he's clearly focused on the Holy Spirit. And yet at the same time, do you think you're going to catch a good, sharp, clear, distinct vision of that kingdom without the Holy Spirit? He's saying, look, you dads, let's be honest. You're a bunch of carnal dudes in some way. He says, you're still working on it. He said, yeah, you're good enough to where your kid... (laughs) Here's how good you are. Your kid asks for an egg and you don't give him a scorpion. You know, he said, you know, here you are, father of the year, that you can at least pull off that. He goes, but what do you think God, who is a perfect father... How you think he's going to respond when you're on your knees, if you can still get on your knees? I know some of us have a hard time. But when you're praying passionately, God, I just want this to be real. I want it to be as real to me as it was to Abraham and as it was to Sarah. I need to see this because the world around me is so real. And I need that to be more real. I need the vision of that to cloud out these other things. Is your father going to ignore a prayer like that? I tell you, he will not. He is not going to ignore that prayer. Ask him, ask him for a vision. Focus on that, this feast. Focus your prayers. Secondly, I would encourage you to focus your attention. Focus your attention. I would say this is probably one of the most difficult for me to focus my attention. My wife and I call it squirrel disease, you know, like a dog. Dog's very intently focused until squirrel, right? And the next thing you know, that's all he really cares about. Uh, back when I was really young and my brain was being corrupted by every sort of worldly entertainment you could imagine, I was really into David Letterman back when he was at his weirdest, I think, uh, still on NBC. And he had this skit that I, even today, I still think is hilarious, which I shouldn't say because you'll judge me for it, but I deserve the judgment, so it's okay. And... <laughs> Essentially, it was a video bit that they had recorded. It was called dog poetry. And it's a German shepherd. And there's words on the screen like the dog, like the dog has written a poem. And they're just scrolling on the screen. And the dog is running around in slow motion. And it's a weird little poem. And after a while, the dog gets to a poem and he says, Oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me for a moment. And he sees a squirrel. Squirrel! Get out of my yard, squirrel! Get out. Death to you, squirrel! Oh, I'm going to bite you. I can't wait. And it's like, Oh, I'm sorry. Where was I? And he goes back to the dog poetry until a squirrel shows up again. And my wife realized, you know, that's you. That's pretty much that's pretty much you. I am very easily distracted. Uh, and so this is hard for me. I'll be up front. Social media is kind of made for me. It's part of why I'm very careful about it, uh, because I could do that very easily. Focus your attention on the kingdom. This feast. Uh, let's look at Second Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 17. Describing the world and all around us and and, and all of our suffering we go through now. It almost seems like an insult. But you have to understand he's trying to help us understand perspective. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 17. Paul says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen but the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This feast is an opportunity to focus on those things that are eternal. You know what is temporary? Twitter is temporary. Fox News is temporary. Breitbart.com is temporary. CNN, very temporary. MSNBC, does it even exist? No, it exists, but it's temporary. All of these things are temporary. They're still going to be there after the feast. I would encourage all of us to a certain extent. I even during the feast, I kind of keep my pulse on world events. Dr. Meredith always encourages that there's something going on in the world. It's 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 sometimes good to mention it in a sermon. But that said, I try. I try. I don't watch YouTube as much during the feast. My favorite apps. I try not to play on uh, Twitter. I'm. So happy with myself, I've only gone once at the same time. It's the first day of the feast, right? So I can I can't be that happy with myself. This is a time to focus your attention, not on the things that are temporary. Those things will be here after the feast. They'll be waiting for you. They're not going away. Focus on the things that are eternal. This feast on God's kingdom and those things that are going to last. It's been recommended so many times. We've got multiple articles, at least, well, at least two I can think of that say it. But consider reviewing the day's notes the next morning. Getting up in the morning, getting your coffee or whatever gets you going in the morning, and taking out your notes from today. Uh, You've had four messages today and some announcements, you know, and going through and taking a look at those. If you don't take notes, it's it's an opportunity to consider doing that, even if it's just for that purpose. All right. Another focus, another thing to try this feast, another tool, is to focus your imagination. Focus your imagination. Actually take the time to try to imagine what the feast will be like. You know, let's just turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Sometimes called the resurrection chapter. In 1 Corinthians 15, it is talking about our future glorification. It's one of the most detailed discussions you actually get. Starting in verse 42, he says also, talking about glory, boy, you could, there's so much in the chapter worth reading. In fact, that's one way you fuel your imagination is reading these passages. This is just one. Verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body, these bodies we have right now, the body is sown in corruption it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It's worth imagining what that's going to be like. What's the old, what's the old uh, mainstream Christian song? I can only imagine. I'm not going to sing it. Don't worry. I know that was terrible. And it was, let's all pretend that didn't happen. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not saying that's a good song. I can't remember the words. And all of a sudden I'm thinking he's going to say, there's a time you should kiss Santa Claus. Like, oh no, I didn't know. I didn't know it says that in the song. So I'm not saying the song's good. I just remember hearing it. And I did like the idea that can you even possibly imagine how amazing those times will be? I, this is going to sound a little odd, but in reading these things, when the Bible talks elsewhere about our temporary bodies and how terrible they are and they're falling apart and the warranty is running out, uh, it actually, to me, becomes what I call an anti-meditation. Like when I'm in pain, it's an opportunity to meditate on how wonderful it's going to be not to be in pain, right? Uh, it's kind of like the I'm a, I'm a Texas A&M Aggie. I went to Texas A&M University. And if you know that. If you know what that means, that means, you know, that Aggies are the butt of jokes in Texas We're the every group seems to have its people that like to make fun of. And in my university, we were the ones we were the ones that were in all the jokes. Jonathan Bueno knows uh, Mr. Bueno knows. So anyway, one of the old jokes was, well, why did the why did the Aggie uh, keep hitting himself in the face with a brick? It's Because it felt so good when he stopped. But again, I am an Aggie, so I'm just I'm telling on myself. And I feel like I've done things like that in my life. Uh, but there are times when, yes, you know, maybe you have trouble walking. Use that as an opportunity to imagine what it's going to be like to fly, right? To have where Earth has no grasp on you and can prevent you from doing things like that. As I get older, I get weaker and my kids get stronger and life is not fair, it seems like in that way. Uh, but like Mr. Weston said, you know, it kind of focuses us on the future, focuses on a better world. And it should. I imagine being strong, strong, not like I used to be when I was young and dumb, but I'll be smart and glorified, right? What it's like to not ever be tempted again. Imagine what that is like. Take the time to invest. Read passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Read these millennial passages and don't just read them. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 35 as an example. It's sort of a law that we have to hit Isaiah 35 at least once every, every Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, In Isaiah 35, you just have, it's like a, a potpourri of wonderful things about tomorrow's world. Isaiah 35 and verse 1. It says the wilderness and the wasteland This is verse one of Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them. and The desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the eternal, the excellency of our God. Just reading just that part. You know, we drove through, uh, like I said, went from Charlotte to, to California, and eventually you got to New Mexico, which is ridiculous that they dropped the speed limit to 65. Uh, my wife and I were thinking, there could be a small dog 10 miles ahead on this road and I would see it. Why did they drop the speed limit to 65 when it's the country you're doing your best to get through as fast as possible? There's no reason to stay there. Uh, but you know what? New Mexico did start to get very interesting and mountainous and, and even the plains themselves. I mean, they did have a certain fascination with me. But when we got to Arizona and we saw Sedona, that was beautiful. But then before long, you're in the vast wasteland of the eastern part of California, right? Uh, I actually saved certain music I wanted to listen to on my in our car when we got there certain things like California Dreamin, which eh, you know, But certain uh, certain songs like that because I that's, I like a soundtrack in my life uh, But certain uh, even soundtracks from movies I thought would kind of go well with entering California our last state And part of it was related to just the the, the arid area there and the dunes that you would see but That's an opportunity to take time. What would this thing be like? What would this place be like under the hand of Jesus Christ? Who's going to have the blessing of beautifying this place? And then what would that look like? If we could imagine ourselves for those familiar with Minecraft, like doing Minecraft in real life. If you had the opportunity to shape and beautify some part of the planet and then taking the time like those elite athletes to literally think about it. Not just to say, won't it be wonderful How wonderful would it be? What would you do where? What flowers would you use? What looks like a beautiful place to you? Take the time to think about it. Take the time to imagine walking along it. Use your imagination to picture this world the way it should be, the way it will be made. Let's jump down to verse 5. Verse 5. We read here in verse five, then the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer. The tongue of the dumb sing. The water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool. The thirsty land springs of water. What a beautiful place with people who are no longer broken in any way at all, but are restored Take the time to imagine that if you haven't. Jesus Christ said that look at all the works I've done. Those who follow me will do greater works than these. Think about it. We'll talk about this more in my my next sermon, God willing. But imagine what it would be like to go up to someone who has never seen the sun before in their life. And to be allowed by Jesus Christ to be the one to just take them by the cheeks then touch their eyes with your thumbs and move your hands away and they can see. They can see their children. They can see their families. They see the clouds in the sky. Take the time to picture it in your mind. Close your eyes and take the time to visualize intensely opening someone else's. Make those things real because God promises you, you will have the opportunity to do those things. If you just stick with him and see this clearly enough to allow it to draw you there and endure over the course of the rest of your life. So focus your imagination. The last two things I would encourage you briefly to focus your experiences while you're here. Don't just kind of tumble your way through the feast and find that you've done it. Uh, And not look back and not done it with intention. Think about it. I very much appreciate Mr. Carpenter's comment. You know, sometimes we do have to make sure we have perspective. Someone wants to, where, where do you want to do the feast? Well, can we just do the feast at Six Flags? Uh, but I don't know if y'all have six flags. What's the equivalent of six flags here? I don't know, but uh, roller coasters, you know, amusement parks. Can we just have the feast just there? Well, look, I'm a boy. I like go-karts. I like all that kind of stuff. The church does not necessarily approve go-karts. It's a risky, uh, thing to do. And, uh, the insurance will not cover you. However, you're a free person. You know, if there's go-karts around, you certainly can drive them. And I love doing those things with the boys. We love, we love, I'm a boring guy. I like putt-putt, right? Uh, but I like fun things. I like doing those things. And it's not wrong to do them at the feast. As long as we're not just here to be consumed by fun, let the fun add to the picture. Because the millennium is going to be a blast. And think about that then. In what ways use your fun as a tool to help you picture something larger. When you sit down at a meal with food that you normally could not afford. Because God is saying here, I want, I'm commanding you. Save 10% so for at least a week you can get the kind of food you can't afford. Which is not, by the way, a trash bag full of Skittles. I don't recommend that even though you couldn't normally afford it. Food that's good. Food you should eat, right? So, you know, sitting down at that and then taking a bite and thinking, you know what? This is a really nice tasty steak. Or maybe you don't eat steak. You don't eat meat. So really great tasting cube of tofu, right? Which... Well, no, there's no such thing. But, uh, you know, whatever it is you're enjoying. And so we're thinking, oh, don't make fun of my tofu. I love that stuff. Uh, so you're eating your steak. And realize this is steak in a world that has been deteriorating for 6,000 years. When you bite into an apple, perhaps, for the morning, for your morning fruit, that's an apple in a world that has been deteriorating for 6,000 years. Use it as an opportunity to think, what is this going to taste like in a world that has been improving for just a thousand. I don't think we know what food is supposed to taste like. Use even your meals, use your experiences here as an opportunity to try to focus on the kingdom. And the last thing I'll recommend, and there's other things you can do. These are just what I came up with. Focus your fellowship and your conversation. Let's turn to Malachi chapter 3. And a lot of you probably know where I'm going. Not all of you will, and I would be perhaps not sure. But some of you do. Malachi chapter 3, because I mentioned fellowship and conversation. But as I like to say, if you know where I'm going, that means you're already held accountable for it. So make sure you're doing it. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 16. We read here, Then those who feared the eternal, Malachi three sixteen. Those who feared the eternal, which we long to do, which we're here to learn to do and strive to do. Those who feared the eternal spoke to one another and the eternal listened and heard them. And so a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the eternal and who meditate on his name. I don't know if you've thought about that before, but when you're sitting at a dinner table and you want to bring up some question about the sermon or some question about the kingdom. And even if even if you just want to start a fight, I mean, a fun fight, not a bad fight, you know, but like one of those. Hey, do you think do you think there's going to be big cities in the kingdom? Because I don't think so. And you know that guy thinks there's going to be big cities in the kingdom, you know. It's like, well, here's why I don't think so. And you're having, you can do that in fun. It's okay to do that in fun. You know, no no blows, no nothing like that, right? But because cause who knows, right? Is God going to keep it all urban scale except for maybe Jerusalem? Or is he going to have big cities? I don't think Seattle is going to exist. But still, you know, is he going to do some things? But you know, to have those discussions: Are we going to have solar power? Are we going to be digging materials from the earth? Is it going to be like oil, like we use today, or not? Uh, is it going to be all green or not green? Is if it's all going to be electric? Are we going to be using lithium mines and all the rest, I, I, you know, and despoiling the environment? What are we? How how is power going to work in the millennium? Will there be technology in the millennium? Will everybody have to have an aggregator? A farmer kind of base, or uh, you know, uh, well, how far will specialties go? Uh, my wife and I were talking. I mentioned a comment. Well, I wonder if there's going to be restaurants in the millennium. She goes, "Well, yeah. Why wouldn't there be?" And so we talked about it. Right? That's a great thing, kids. This could be your assignment for the feast if you want. Talk to your mom and dad. And, and here's the form of the question: Do you think we'll have blank in the millennium? And blank's not bad there. It's a fill in the blank. You know, do you think we'll have restaurants? In the millennium, uh, do you think we'll have pets in the millennium? Do you think we'll have sports in the millennium? Do you think we'll have movies in the millennium? Do you think we'll have schools, restaurants, I said restaurants hospitals? And then why or why not? Talk to each other about those things. Share with your brother and sister in Christ your hopes and your dreams for the millennium. And what Malachi 3 tells us is when you're sitting at that Burger King table, uh, because that's all you could find at the moment, you're really desperate for something, you're sitting, I'm not endorsing Burger King, uh, you're sitting there and you turn to your wife or your brother or sister in Christ or your kids and you bring up something with the millennial, Malachi 6 says, you have God's ear. You have gotten his attention all of a sudden. And he says, hey, Bob, Bob the angel, <laughs> you know, hey, Write this down. I want to remember this moment. Because my kid is sitting in Burger King and talking about what he looks forward to me giving him. We're promised in Malachi those moments, as small as they might be, mean something to him. So let's make sure this feast that we focus doesn't Doesn't I mean you can't talk about anything else. You can talk about the Kansas City Chiefs. Are they still the Kansas City Chiefs? I'm, I'm not a sportsy guy. Uh, you know, you can talk about, you know, uh, those things, too. But we're wasting our time if we're not talking about the kingdom and we're not talking about the millennium. If that's not making its way at all, then we're making a mistake. And let's make sure that we do. You know, in conclusion, the last great day is October 17th. It's just seven days away. And at that time, after that, you and I are going to have to go back into the world. It's unavoidable. It's still going to be there and we still have things to do in it. But we have an option. We can just go back into it with the same level of vision of God's kingdom that we had before we got here. Or we can jump back into it with renewed passion for what we know God is holding out for us at the end of our time in this age, in this world. Now, let's look at one last verse, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. Speaking of what he longs to do in the world. Paul describing what God longs to do in the world and thinking on it, meditating on it. He had come to understand things that gave him a perspective that we need to have. And this feast is our opportunity to grab Romans chapter eight and verse 18. He writes here, for I consider the sufferings of this present time. And let's be honest, brethren, the sufferings are difficult. Some of you have suffered in ways that I can't imagine. And you don't need anyone to tell you the sufferings of this world are great. And yet Paul puts those in perspective. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That glory that God wants to reveal in you shines so brightly. And the world that he will grow out of you and create is so fantastic that there's literally no suffering in this world that can even come close to compare. It's not like here's the glory of that world and then here's the suffering of this world. He says they're not worthy to be compared. They are far too distant from each other. That's how great this world is to come. And it's worthy of our efforts to try to get a vision of that. He says in verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. That's you and me. The whole creation is waiting for that. It says in verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And he says the next verse that the creation, the creation is groaning like with birth pangs. Now, if you've ever been in a room with a mother giving birth, if you've been a mother giving birth, you know what that's like. And that's what the creation is going through right now. And one thing I've loved so far in Oregon, when the. Fog allows me to see it as it's as a lot of creation here. There's a lot of creation back here in Oregon. There's a lot of trees and dunes and it's beautiful in that way. We've been looking forward to this terrain because, again, we've never been here. The one thing I want to remember is this passage in Romans 8. Because as I drive by every dune, every tree, all of it is telling me like it's telling you. Become what you're supposed to be. Become what God wants you to be. We're all counting on you to do this, to grab a vision of this, to make this world better. God doesn't want to do it without you. He wants to do it with you. He wants to do it in you and create in you what he plans on creating in the entire world. Brethren, there is no vision in this world worth fighting for and worth investing in and growing in our mind's eye like a vision of the kingdom of God. Let's all spend this feast every moment we can making that vision real.